Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 160. In this episode, we're talking about dyslexia and diverse learning with Professor Marianne Wolf. Professor Marianne Wolf is the director of the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. She's also the author of a number of books on reading and dyslexia, including Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain, published by HarperCollins, and Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, also published by HarperCollins. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Stephanie K. Judd, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Madison Pierce, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this conversation with Professor Wolf was so engaging, so interesting, so enlightening in so many ways. It was such a delight to have her on the podcast. When we had Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor on in the past, she made reference to Professor Wolf's work. And that's how I first heard about her work and, and just absolutely found it so, so interesting and fascinating. And just love that she was able to join us uh, today. Steph, Madison, Daniel, Amber, what were some of the takeaways that you had from this conversation with Professor Wolf? I mean, what an absolute delight um, to speak with her and learn from her and to see a glimpse of the passion that she has for this work. And it, it, it's worthy of that passion, I think. Um, I think, I mean, so many take-homes um, from this conversation. I think one of the things that I'll be reflecting on is the way in which in her work, she's convinced that the cerebral diversity of the different wirings that we have in our brain processes, the ways that our brains organise themselves differently, is essential if we're going to be able to face the complex problems that face our common life. Um, Because, you know, often what's shorthandedly referred to as dyslexia um, involves people thinking outside the box creatively and we really need that there's really difficult problems that we're facing particularly in in our democracies now and if we don't if if we just and this has been a theme in our series to date often what's called as disability is conceived of as a problem to be solved something to be cured uh, a malady to be remedied And when you flip the script and actually see, yes, of course, there are challenges associated with that, but there's also gifts on offer. Um, And those gifts are are ones that we really need. We all really need each other. We need each other's different ways of seeing the world. And I think that her invitation um, to pay attention to one another more, to exercise those ethical muscles more, to imagine what it's like to think and to see the world differently rather than just in our linear <laughs> cognitive um, highways. Um, some of the take-homes was an amazing conversation. Yeah, for me, um, you know, one, as um, a parent of a, of a small little human who's learning to read, it was just really fun to think through, you know, I think sometimes I fall into the trap of wondering or worry, worrying is a better word, you know, is my child 
uh, different or diverse. And, um, and I quickly, you know, try to tamp that down, but, um, it was a reminder that whatever she is or however she learns is going to be amazing. Um, and, you know, to be able to celebrate some of that. I also really love to think about uh, literacy and numeracy as an invention. Uh, it's so fascinating and it's a helpful reminder. You know, I've had some conversations about what constitutes technology and the reminder that books <laughs> are an important part of, of technology. It's something that we so take for granted now and that we feel like we've moved beyond. Um, but there's still something that are foreign, um, that there's something that that's produced. So anyways, those are some interesting things for me that I learned today and that were reiterated. Yeah, I think I think Dr. Wolf points out the fact that difference is beauty, right? I, I think to there's challenges in every every aspect of that, but I think it's even more compounded when we label disability in a way that lacks beauty, and and so she paints that in a way that actually helps us to be a better society, right? To to recognize that it's actually be a better society because once we recognize the beauty, we advocate for it. Uh, in ways that is just and equitable. Uh, and so uh, I think she just primed that for the minds of people to say, that, oh, yeah, I, I never thought about disability in a way that's actually redemptive, right? Um, and, and if I can advocate uh, in that way, uh, then I actually bring greater redemption, not to the disabled one, but to society as a whole. And so I think she, she paints that so well uh, in a way that I think I hope our listeners will walk away um, feeling a sense of advocacy, uh, but then also before that sense of advocacy, understanding the beauty that still comes within um, individuals who have uh, intellectual challenges or re uh, reading challenges or whatever the nature uh, that we deem as a disability to be. I've personally benefited very much from Dr. Wolf's work, thinking about reading, literacy, and deep reading in a digital age. And it was really fascinating for me to see how she applies many of those key insights to dyslexia in particular. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Marianne Wolf. Well, Professor Wolf, thanks so much for joining us. It's my true pleasure. Um, I'm going to tell everyone on the podcast that the major reason I said yes is because of John Dunn's name. First, <laughs> and I'm an English major and, of course, have loved the poetry of John Dunn. But then I was both a student and a lifelong friend of the theologian John Dunn. And the shock of seeing his name on my email, whatever he said, I was going to say yes. But now it's a, it's a real um, it's a real pleasure to be part of a podcast that Bethel is sponsoring. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Oh. Well, 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 thanks for that. I have to say they're both the reason, part of the reason why I use my full name whenever I do anything publicly or publish anything, uh, just for disambiguation purposes, but really appreciate uh, that connection there. Uh, but you're, you're an expert in reading and dyslexia, and we're doing this series on disability, and we're really excited to talk with you about uh, dyslexia in particular, and wanted to kind of begin by hearing a little bit about what got you interested in this uh, area of research? Well, most people think that 
I became interested in dyslexia because of my son. And because this is a podcast, most people can't see behind me, but all of you who are part of this interview can. And what you see is, I think, a rather extraordinary piece of art. And it's by my son, Ben Wolf Noam, who is an artist. And we'll talk about the propensity of many people with dyslexia to have special talents, gifts in, in, in visual perception and in its depiction and expression. We'll talk about that. But that wasn't how I got into dyslexia work at all. Um, there were two things that happened. One, I was launched in a career, I thought, to study poetry. Um, I was particularly interested in the work of Rainer Maria Rilke, the poet, and I have, you know, a master's degree um, that focused on his work. But I thought between my master's and pursuing a PhD, I, I'm, I've always been a teacher one way or another, and I thought I would be teaching poetry the rest of my life to grown-ups like all of you and i thought mm, i love children so i must spend about a year or two or more before i do the phd really uh, almost like um a peace corps decision to work with children in places that were in most need and at the time, um, as you know, John Dunn is a theologian at Notre Dame, and I was one of the, the first women to go both to St. Mary's, a women's school, and to Notre Dame, a men's school. It was a unique exchange of, of perspectives because of that. But they had a program in which they sent people to places where the schools had fallen apart, or there were other things things that were worthy of a Peace Corps-like commitment. So I was to be sent to um, basically North Dakota and work with Native Americans. And I was so excited. And literally the week before they canceled, <laughs> they didn't have enough money. Now we never got stipends, but they didn't have enough money at that moment for food and accommodations. So at the very last minute, I was sent to rural Hawaii. And I was, you know, so embarrassed to tell my friends, I'm going to Hawaii. I mean, what kind of political cachet is that? But when I got there, I realized how unbelievably necessary literacy is to the species. And I was confronted with children whose parents, by and large, so many of them, had come from the Philippines as semi-indentured servants. And the parents did not were not literate. Um, and then there were many kids in my class who spoke different languages. And we ended up having the, the principal at the time thought, and in those days, this was 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 a it was just a reality that the children wouldn't be allowed to speak pidgin english hawaiian pidgin and that was an eye-opener we had all these languages and we were forbidden to use the one that was 
in a way the lingua franca of that little village. So I began to confront two things, the importance of language, of words, of communication, and the essential role that literacy plays in developing the potential of each individual. And I, I had to learn all of this on the spot. I had to learn how to teach reading, which I did not do well. Um, I, you know, was well-versed in literature and children's literature and my kids loved me and I loved them, but it was insufficient. And I encountered children who absolutely couldn't learn to read. And there was a teacher there at the time who was working with them and she seemed to do a lot better than I did, but I didn't know why. What did she know that I didn't know? And what really struck me was by the end of the year, we'd won the Hawaiian storytelling contest, my little class. And I had lost about 20% of the class in terms of their ability ever to read. I was the third, fourth grade teacher. And if you don't make it by fourth grade, you're really not gonna be fully literate. So I left Hawaii with love and guilt that I couldn't do something. And so I went back to the mainland and I began the most intensive study of linguistics at the time and realized what I had never known, how the structure of the language is part of what you learn when you read and how some children were unable to read, not because of the methods, some were because of methods of teaching, but some because there was something different about them. I didn't understand dyslexia then, but I decided I would go to any school that would accept me. <laughs> now you may laugh and say, well, Harvard's a pretty good <laughs> place, <laughs> but it's true. I had no idea. I just chose one of the three schools that accepted me. And I chose them because they had a lab a lab that had um, a special class for the children, the, the children who couldn't read. And so I, I really was the most ignorant student I think they ever accepted. Um, but I began to understand, and this is really a leitmotif for the rest of our talk, that the brain has different forms of organization. We call that cerebral diversity or neurodiversity, but in those days, there was not what we call cognitive neuroscience. But at that point in time, I was absolutely un understanding a fundamental insight. We don't come equipped to read. We have to build a circuit in the brain for inventions like literacy and numeracy. And those inventions can be either helped by society and culture through the ways we teach, through the mediums, through the particulars of the language, or these children, these individuals will never learn to read, whether it's because of dyslexia or multiple other reasons. And I, mm, this is so interesting in a connection to John Donne, I began the study of words, how the brain processes words, whether it's an oral language or written language, 
And then I discovered aphasia, how the brain can, through lesions, do to, and we had in the VA, the older Vietnam vets who'd had shrapnel wounds, causing them to be unable to read. That's called alexia. And studying aphasia and alexia led me to understand, oh, that may be why some children can't learn. They have a difference in that organization. And from then on, I saw dyslexia as the study of what we all have to know in order to ensure what I would call deep reading, deep literacy for all. So even though it was the study of one form of difference in the brain, which I came to understand is actually multiple forms, it led me to understand written language, the power of written language to release the potential of an individual and what happens when that doesn't. And so from that moment on, though my special area is dyslexia, it is part of a huge, if you will, study of what written language means to the future of humanity, to the future of democracy, to the individual futures of, of all the children we are neglecting. And um, COVID has taught us that we have neglected so many more children who could have reached their potential had we had what my area calls the science or neuroscience of reading. So this is a long story in a way, but it, it, it helps understand for the, the listener why my center is called the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice. Social justice and science and poetry are all interwoven into our, our work. Amen. Thank you so much. There are so many parts of that that I want to unpack, and I do hope we'll get back to social justice. But one of the things that you said, um, I think we probably need to define for some of our listeners. You were talking about literacy and numeracy. Did I get that one right? As inventions. Could you say a little bit more about that? Certainly. Um, I wrote a book uh, almost 15 years ago when I realized that most people, okay, aha, look at that. So it was called Proust and the Squid, the story and science of the reading brain. The first line of it, um, Madison, is we were never born to read. And the reality is the species is, our particular brain is about 50,000 years old. Now, you can just ask yourself, how many years have we read? We've only read 6,000 years. We because, and, and then we read in what I would say is a very basic way. We had symbols for you know barrels of wine, numbers of sheep. In a way, you can say that the first letters were numbers or symbols for numeracy, but it's a deeper reality. The species only 6,000 years ago discovered that they could record 
record words, record what was going on, record transactions, record thoughts. That, 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 with the Sumerians and the Egyptians, you have this beginning understanding very much at, at the start that there is something very special about being able to have a symbol stand, represent something, and that it can represent words, it can represent thoughts. That's 6,000 years ago. We had this brain 50,000 years ago, but we didn't have one brain 50,000 years ago. We had this, this brain with variations, and those variations we call cerebral diversity. Gordon Sherman coined that term to understand that human beings have different areas that are more developed than in other parts of their brain. And that is essential for the survival of the species. Now, I, I reckon, to use a good old Midwestern word, I reckon that most of you who are asking me questions have what I have, which is a pretty darn linear operating brain. It's linear. It doesn't, it has its own pathways of thought, but it's pretty linear. There are brains that are not linear. Some of you may have read a recent essay by Temple Grandin, who is an amazing example of autism spectrum disorder, which you know, I wish it weren't called disorder, but um, she shows the almost amazing power of difference in how that brain is organized. And in dyslexia, you have a brain that's organized um, before reading was ever invented. And that's really important because most people say, oh, it's a reading disorder, it's a reading disability. It is a different organization of the brain that is advantaged for some areas and disadvantaged for others. It is, it was never disadvantaged before reading was invented, but it became disadvantaged after reading was invented and literacy was um, a skill that became more and more needed as the species evolved. But the reality is that literacy and numeracy didn't exist in the way vision, language, communication through language existed. We invented symbols. Now, we invented symbols well before symbols for words. Um, the cave drawings that are, they're even sometimes that, that looks like there are some symbols that are as old as 70 and 80,000 years old. There's certain ones that have just markings. So we had the symbolic capacity probably 70 to 80,000 years ago, but only, only a blink of the evolutionary um, clock is, is what we have with literacy. And it, it became, it moved from a few basic symbols, almost like tokens, um, the anthropologist Denise Bezerat talks a lot about this, um, but these these little tokens began to become more sophisticated. Now there may be continued debate for still some time 
over whether the Sumerians or the Egyptians invented the alphabet, or not the alphabet, the writing system. Um, it is probable that there was cross-fertilization going on, probably with the Egyptian first. It looks like there were things there in Wadi El Hole that were first for them, and then the Sumerians developed their own system. But there was probably cross-fertilization going on. But this, this is really not in the brain. This is like knitting. <laughs> we invented knitting, which requires a very simple um, circuit, which I can't do. <laughs> I have no knitting circuit. But we did invent a system for representation of numbers and letters, which we, of course, now call literacy and numeracy. Um, you might think, well, weren't there precursors? Yes, the precursors were in drawing for letters and symbols. But there were also precursors um, in, in other species for numeracy. If you ask any <laughs> decent primate uh, what how many, well, what they will choose in the two bowls of bananas, one with five and one with seven. And that primate will choose the one with seven. So there's a very primitive aspect to uh, numeracy that is different from, from literacy. Um, so we, we rather know that in the primate brain, some of the same areas that they, that the primates use for understanding uh, a, a kind of concept of numeracy. We use that same one and we've developed it. Not so with reading. Reading is um, has a, a different organization. I imagine that um, most of our listeners have encountered dyslexia to some extent. I know, um, you know, dyslexia, we have um, members of our family who have been diagnosed with dys dyslexia. Um, but I wonder if you could give us a, a little bit of an overview of what that entails and how it generally is, you know, plays out or is observed in, in um, early, early learners. Of course. Uh, Madison, you even cued me um, up because you said members of your family. Well, it's a genetic if, you know, for me, I say it's a genetic gift and a genetic challenge, and it is both. Um, but that goes back to the brains. We, this is a very long, useful organization of the brain. And I, I have to say, when I, even before I give you a quote unquote definition, um, I will say that this brain has been with us because it is a brain that thinks outside the box, probably the builders of, of the past, what we would now, the precursors of our architects, the builders, the generals, those people who could see patterns on the battlefield, or, you know, when we had our little villages, our little groups of people, who was most attentive to that which would um, give a cue or clue to danger. This brain is an amazing brain for thinking, as I said, non-linearly, thinking outside the box, having a visual sense 
um, and being able to use that visual sense to build. Um, so whether it's art or architecture, sculpture, the 19th, 19th 20th century um, is so interesting in terms of who were the artists that had a history of, of, of dyslexia or who had a history of not being able to learn to read. Um, some of you may have been in Barcelona and seen Gaudi's extraordinary buildings. And I saw that I was with my family at the time. It was a vacation in the summer. And I looked at these buildings and I looked at the colors and I looked at the shapes that they, you know, this one cathedral has. I thought, oh my God, Gaudi was dyslexic. Now, the, my son who painted that at the time said, mom, everywhere you go, you find dyslexics. You're just trying to help me. I said, no, I'm going to prove it. So I went to all these biographies of Gaudi. And of course, they don't have a diagnosis of dyslexia, but they said, it was so unusual for this very intelligent person not to be able to do well in school, especially. And remember, this is Spanish, you know, so this is a more regular language, but he had such a hard time. So I said, he's mine. He's mine. <laughs> but that brings us back to who is mine, who who belongs to the, if you will, the unique group of people who have suffered in this last century in schools because people did not understand that dyslexia is not a malady. It's not something to overcome. And one of the most popular books was um, a, a wonderful gift to people to understand dyslexia, but it used in the title overcoming. And I, I feel that uh, especially as a mother and researcher, I was a researcher first and then a mother. Um, it's not about overcoming, it's understanding dyslexia. And dyslexia requires our society to understand that we have different brain organizations. This particular one has different manifestations. And um, Madison, you talked about your family. Well, I I'll bet there are both diagnosed and undiagnosed members of your family. And only after my own son had dyslexia, and this is after I was a researcher for some years, did I understand that my father, who graduated from Notre Dame, was sort of like what we would call an engineer at the time. We didn't have that term, but I mean, they had term engineer, but that's really what he was. I always wondered, he always read the newspaper, but he never read a book. And only later did I realize, not only did my father not read a book, my grandfather, who was one of the most successful entrepreneurs, which is another light, light motif, entrepreneurs, there, I don't even want, I, I, nobody's gonna give me money to study Silicon Valley genetically, but if they did, I will bet there is a preponderance of CEOs, would they, there was even a Forbes magazine article on this, on how entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley have so often a history of dyslexia. Now, this is all, if you will, preparatory for people who are listening to understand why I'm saying this is not a malady, this is not a disability in the sense that most people use it. It is a difference in learning because that brain is different. Now. My grandfather, the entrepreneur, 
uh, was kicked out of, you know, the family doesn't call it that, but we would say he was kicked out of high school as a freshman. Why? Because he threw a book out a window. Why did he throw a book out of a window? Because he was probably asked to read it publicly. Now, I can't, can't prove that. Nobody can tell me. But the idea that he threw a book out a window as a freshman in high school and then went on to, you know, have multiple farms, oil company, Coca-Cola company, you know, I mean, give me a break. This is a dyslexic brain. But I never, ever knew that until I started understanding my own son in a different way from the research. And by that, I mean, there are differences within dyslexia. It's not just one entity. It is, now here we'll come to the standard definition. It is an inability to easily acquire the correspondence rules between letters and sounds of the language often because of a difference in how that brain represents those sounds. Now those sounds um, in common linguistic parlance and or in my area are called phonemes. And the alphabetic principle or the principle in any writing system is that the person who is learning to read must learn to represent the visual symbol and connect it in alphabets to phonemes. In Chinese or Japanese, depending on kanji or kana, you will, you will not go straight to the phoneme, but to the concept and then the phoneme. But in dyslexia, what is happening is that the connection between that representation of a visual symbol and the connection to the phonemes is not working in the same way. Now, it can be because of the phonemes are not represented in the same way. And that's in standard definitions, uh, you will hear or, or read that the person with dyslexia has the great difficulty in representing the sounds. Research by my colleagues and myself shows that some children have perfectly fine phoneme representation, but it's how fast the brain can connect the visual symbol with those phonemes, that that connectivity is too slow. Now, in dyslexia, you will have in a school, any, um, any child who's having difficulty, people will think, well, it's developmental, They'll, they're a boy, they're gonna develop out of it. The, the reality is that that is true for some, but between 10, around 10% in any classroom, anywhere, will have a different brain organization. Now 10%, if you take it around the world, is a lot. Now the, reality is that some writing systems are easier than English. Italian, Spanish, German, all these more regular languages, the phoneme plays less of a role because it's very easily, let's say German, okay, your, your A is going to be pronounced one way by and large unless it has an umlaut. 
That's not true in English. Think of EA in English. There are seven popular, popular pronunciations for it in reading. But I've counted, I've, you know, these are the sorts of ridiculous things that my brain does at night. I have up to 13 different pronunciations because <laughs> I count beautiful and creation and stuff like that. But the reality is English puts a heavy, heavy role on both the connections that are pretty regular between letters, but also learning other possible pronunciations. So we have in English a more difficult uh, alphabet than, and the French do too. The French is, is, is somewhat more difficult. But in dyslexia, that plays a big role. That inability to really learn those correspondence rules and the alphabetic principle in an, a fairly straightforward way is, is not available. Now, recent research and very old research used to emphasize visual processing. For the last 40 years, visual processing has not been emphasized as one of the major factors. The reality is that in a few children, that may be why it would seem that they are seeing a crowding of letters rather than a serial presentation. But there are two major predictors of dyslexia, Madison, that we know will help us define dyslexia. One, for a large group of children, they don't represent those phonemes. For a similarly large percentage, the speed with which those visual and language areas is not functioning at the, in the same way. Now, then you get into brain imaging research, and that's not necessarily your question, but I want you to know that when you examine um, a simple, what seems like a very simple task, it's called a RAN, Rapid Automatized Naming. They're just supposed to read across a line for 50 stimuli. It's always the same stimuli repeated over and over again. You want to see how the brain names letters in a serial fashion over and over and over again or objects or numbers or colors and what you see is that the brain of a dyslexic child 70 about 70 percent of them can't do that at the same rate that other kids can so both phoneme awareness and the ability to reach a rate of automaticity of identifying and being able to say this word is cat now that requires three phonemes it requires also what is very often you know neglected it requires seeing those those in a systematically serial fashion so it's not atka or or tack which is a common misconception that reversals are the best definition. This is not true. Everybody has reversals, but there are some children who have reversals longer, but that's not defining. It's what's defining is how those, that identification takes place in time or the brain, which is, here's where the brain imaging comes, where it's all supposed to get connected here in the left hemisphere. It has to get the 
remember your eye has is sending information to both hemispheres it has to collect the information in the right hemisphere take it over to the left hemisphere and connect it all and for many a child with dyslexia they are clinging to processing it in the right hemisphere and not sending it over in the same speed to get connected in the left hemisphere so that's why when we talk about dyslexia we're talking about an inability to learn to acquire the rules of the alphabet those correspondence rules between letters and sounds at the same developmental pace and at the same rate of processing so phonemes are involved um, and then I will say to make things just a tiny bit more complicated we are discovering that really dyslexia is quite a bit more heterogeneous than we knew that there are some kids who only have those phoneme issues some kids who only have those fluency issues those are smaller groups and the largest group studied to date has both of those and then there are others that are we are only beginning to understand this basket of others some might be what we call orthographic you know they aren't they aren't processing the the patterns of the letters in the same way some may be the vestiges of developmental language disorder so that this is just um, part of the evolution of that developmental language issue so you have these differences in dyslexia and that's why when your family and my family if we would ever look i'm sure there are differences in my son and my father and my grandfather and even because i went way back to the 19th century my great great grandfather was an entrepreneur who began with a penny cart and he in the history of indiana it is said that mr beckman was most unusual in that he'd acquired all this wealth without being able to read a single cipher okay <laughs> genetics is everywhere <laughs> but but the point is there are differences in dyslexia and um, and and it is not by any means over for that child because they can't learn to read in the beginning they can't learn to read because we haven't learned how to teach them and now our job in for the last 20 years especially has emphasized what do we do to teach children with those different organizations to reach their potential so that they're artists and architects and entrepreneurs and make more even though money is never going to be the reason why anybody on this screen or probably anybody listening to this that is not our goal but i will just say that many of the reasons why i have been asked to study entrepreneurs is because they make so much money <laughs> and people want to know well what is it that makes an entrepreneur who is dyslexic but anyway i'm being facetious when this when the the reality and i'll come back to madison your question about defining the reality is that most of our kids are only diagnosed too late at second grade third grade and so they spend their first two years 
three years in school believing they're a failure. And that is one of the great sins. I consider it mortal sin of the educational system that our teachers were never really given it, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, now we're doing much better job. They were never given an understanding of the reading brain. They were never given an understanding of dyslexia. And it was always pushed off to special education, which often also didn't necessarily include dyslexia. So we have a real issue when I say it's a gift and a challenge. We have a real issue in turning a challenge into a gift for our kids. And we know how to do that, but it is, it is not the case across the country that we have only in only in recent years, thanks to parents, um, have we had this huge shift to understanding how science can help us learn how to teach better and save those kids from feeling their failure and then becoming after fourth grade a dropout basically intellectually and then by eighth grade, sometimes in a gang or in the juvenile justice system. And you don't want anybody who is that smart becoming a thug. One of the things that I am really curious about is the decline in, in literacy in general, particularly in the digital context. And yeah, I know yeah. that you have <laughs> written uh, quite extensively about this. Uh, I've really felt it a lot with my students. Um, in fact, this semester I made a change and I, every for their weekly reading for my first years, I assigned a 500 word article before each class as opposed to a book with chapters um, because they're much more likely to actually do the reading if I assign that. But just in general, the, the literacy rate I, is pretty shocking, uh, shockingly low. But I'm really curious how dyslexia works on a digital platform or what digitization, what, what are those effects on someone with dyslexia in particular? So um, I love your question, Amber. As you know, I have written a book about this and Reader Come Home, which John is showing, um, is that book, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Um, there are important implications for all of society about how we have become, because of the medium, uh, more skimmers, scrollers, um, people who are word spotting their way through an, an argument, and so they are missing details, or fiction, they're missing beauty, or you know, very important contracts, they're missing very important points. Um, but by and large, the dyslexic population is really can be helped by digital technology. Now, I I want I, I there is no binary part of my perspective here. You can arrange by purposeful, intentional reading to read on a screen in a deep reading fashion. But the reality is that the screen as a medium hastens us to finish. And so we're bombarded with information. And so, Amber, you're not the only one. English professors are writing me and saying they can't teach Henry James. 
that they have to give short stories now because the attentional and distraction driven students are not capable of sustained reading. It's not that they aren't reading as much because if you look at just how much they're reading, they're bombarded by print, but that's part of the problem. The bombardment means they're only going to familiar sources or they're reading and you may laugh. I, my editor wanted to kill my sons. They wanted to title my book TLDR. Too long, didn't read. <laughs> they wanted, that's what the title, they wanted my book to be called. My sons, one of whom worked at Google at the time. And I'm like, and my editor wanted just to, she, she, Marianne, I will never allow. Well, of course I didn't want it either, but it was an example. My own children wouldn't read my long book. Now, one of them is dyslexic and had a good reason not to. And so he did it audio. And the other one did it audio too, because they are so unable to have this sustained long reading that all of us grew up with as the requirements for a real educated brain. So now we have to think, what do we do? Well, your question about dyslexia is so interesting to me because the dyslexic brain can have these differences, which can be helped by larger font, by, by font that shows the syntax more readily. Syntax is really important. We haven't talked about it at all, but understanding how words work in sentences and stories can be actually um, uh, made more visible on, 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 with the use of certain, it's not font, but certain styles of making the print available. The other thing is practice. My own intervention program, which is called Ravo, we are now making a hybrid use of it so that it is going to have both print and digital practice for the dyslexic kids, the kids with dyslexia, because you can make these games that enhance the practice they need. One of the biggest errors in all of education, and I'm so glad you're a teacher, was to call practice drill and kill. This is so wrong in terms of the brain. The brain needs multiple exposures to learn to represent a word, a letter, a anything. The dyslexic brain needs 10 times more representations or exposures. So digital can help us with practice. It can help us with giving audio information while the brain of that child is learning to read at a slower pace, but still getting information that can be supplemented. So the, the digital technology can be a great aid, but, but the, by the same token, if we are only using digital, which is, I think, really wrong in early development, they are learning how to skim and skip and scroll like everybody else and not developing critical analysis and empathy inside the circuit. And I hope you read letter three and four in my book because it's all about how deep reading takes time. And the medium is causing us not to give it that time. And it causes us to short circuit our most time consuming, but most important sophisticated processes. Yeah, interesting. I think that as you're speaking about um, 
the, the impact of our digital age on our ability to, to read well. It reminded us of a conversation we had last year with Karen Swallow Pryor about the ways in which, you know, I, I was... I, I was trained, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I was often trained to digest huge swathes uh, of information yes. and kind of skimming yes. and yes, yes. But you're not actually, the, the impact of reading poorly on our character and, and the missed opportunity that, mm-hmm. that that correlates with in terms of, you know, when you read well, when you really inhabit the literary environment or in a, of a novel, for example, mm-hmm. um, it did, I just was wanted to pick up on that the impact that reading poorly oh. has on, on our characters. Oh, you are so beautifully correct. Um, the reality is that fiction is our uh, vehicle to understanding the consciousness and feelings of other. It helps develop what the philosopher Martha Nussbaum called the compassionate imagination. It helps form two kinds of empathy. One is the cognitive empathy to understand the thoughts of others, but the other is affective empathy, understanding the feelings of others. And in my book and in a lot of presentations, I refer people to Marilyn Robinson, the great novelist who who wrote Gilead and Home and um, also Lila and Jack, I, I prefer Gilead and Home and housekeeping, but but she was asked by former President Barack Obama for an interview. And if, did you read that interview, Steph? Because that interview is, in, is what he's calling her, you know, and saying it was fiction that taught me everything is in black and white, it's full of gray. And she said, the trend, oh, and he said, this is what taught me about others, who others are, having empathy for others. And he kind I don't think he used the term empathy ambassador, but something like that with her. And then she said, the trend towards seeing other as evil or pernicious, whatever word she used, is the greatest threat to our democracy. And that is really about how reading uh, whether it's fiction or alternative viewpoints, is expanding our viewpoint, our character, our ability to take on the perspective of other so that we make wise decisions. Um, Marilyn Robinson went on to say something that whatever God created in us his design was for us to discover within ourselves what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. And that's what reading uh, propels in us, to discover what is good, what is true, what is just, what is beautiful, all of those. You know, it's social justice, but it's also beauty. And language, language releases our capacity to perceive beauty and to produce it and to live it out with others. So I, I can't 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm going to borrow your term character, Steph, because I've been, I haven't been using that word. I've been using, you know, the reading sanctuary. I've been using Proust, um, that the heart of reading is to go beyond the wisdom of the author to discover our own. But really, it is all about the, the building of who we are, the character who we are. And what I worry about every day is that when we diminish that daily refreshing of our character, if you will, we are becoming a, a group of people who are narrower in our perspective, harder to have empathy with others, and ultimately less democratic. And I always come back to democracy because democracy requires the ability for all voices to be heard. And what's happening with so much of the digital culture is the bombardment of information forces people to think, oh, let me just go to the familiar. The familiar is not expanding character. The familiar is simply what people so often call confirmatory bias. And so you stick like mud in your whatever you thought before, and then that mud gets hardened over time. And the rigidification of people is what I see as so worrisome about American democracy. How in the world could these otherwise intelligent people storm a capital in Washington DC or now in Brazil? They are being unable to think critically and empathically. They are losing their capacity to think what is a, the other perspective. I think that that's, that's such an interesting, like when we see difference as a threat to us rather than an opportunity for, as you say, I, I remember reading Malcolm Gladwell's work about that, that stat, yeah. that must have been that Forbes study about the correlation mm -hmm. between creativity and dyslexia. Yeah. And just seeing, um, you know, the survival of our um, species, as you say, re requires us to think outside the box. But so often we see, and particularly in the disabilities study space, see um, this abnormality or yes. something to be fixed rather right. than uh, a diversity, as you say, cerebral diversity to be embraced and actually learned from because we need with so many problems and we need more people with creative solutions. We, so. We we really, you know, I will just say one quick thing. I know we're running out of time, but um, I will never forget my son when he was, oh, maybe seven or eight. He, he heard something in the news about a lack of supplies, I, maybe of chickens in Vietnam. I don't know, something absolutely bizarre. And he said, well, if I were the country next door, I sure would be, you know, buying chickens. And I'm thinking a seven-year-old is thinking about another country buying chickens because in Vietnam, I was like, how does he think like that? And I can give you just the good examples and bad examples, but it's like this mind is not content in a way 
to just look at the one lens. And I will also say, perceptually, there are fascinating differences. One of my dearest friends who recently died, he was the head of the Dyslexia Foundation, and he was, um, he, he was a football player and he was so good because he saw the whole field and he was always ahead of people because he could see the whole. And that was the same way with my son who was um, a soccer player and people were scared because, you know, he it wasn't that he was fast, he wasn't fast, but he could figure out where that ball was going and prevent it and like, perceptually there are such differences that we still don't understand and i'll give you one last perceptual difference i can't and we haven't studied this but my my i i lived in cambridge before i'm in la in a three-story victorian house and we were on the top story and he said mommy mommy i can't handle that noise i don't hear a thing i'm third floor and i go through the house there's nothing wrong there's no you know and finally, I go outside the house with him. And he says, oh, now you can hear it. There was a rusty lawnmower at the end of our block. What in the world? We do not, well, there's so much that we have yet to discover about some of the differences and how useful they can be in ways that we just haven't discovered ourselves. But I know about the creativity of thought in so many of our, of our, and I said I studied entrepreneurs Well, the Kauffman Foundation asked me to bring a bunch of them together. And the things they said were, we see problems like visual models. You know, we see the problem and then we work on it. Or we see what people see and then we see outside of it. And that's, how dare we call that child lazy, dumb, not working to potential, the three most used terms for dyslexics in the first and second grade before they're diagnosed. The pernicious effects on the ego of a child who thinks this is me, this is who I am, I am dumb. And then when you have fourth grade and they can't any longer handle all the materials, we lose them if they haven't been diagnosed and given it enough help. So I look at zero to five, let's make every parent aware of everything they can, read to your child, talk to your child, screen your child by five, and five screen like heck, so that we understand the strengths and the weaknesses and we give interventions at year one, grade one, grade two, and, and okay, so some of them are dyslexic, but they've learned to read, so who cares? And the ones who are dyslexic will take longer. From character to never losing the potential. And that's really the point of this entire time with you. Let us use every opportunity, every vehicle to ensure that each child has the benefit, has the opportunity to learn to their fullest potential in whatever means that we can bring to bear. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much, first and foremost, for your advocacy uh, and uh, your ability to actually um, represent the lived experiences. You, you see it uh, in your own home and in your own family and uh, to be able to 
uh, not only just do research, but actually provide uh, an, an avenue for social justice too in, in the ways uh, that sometimes we fail to recognize in terms of ability or disability uh, when it comes to that realm. Uh, I, I recently, over the past couple of years, have been uh, studying the effects of obsessive compulsive disorder, which uh, elements of that I struggle with. And the word, the word that uh, uh, arose in some of my research was neuroplasticity, uh, the ability of the brain to kind of create new neural pathways. And so I've seen like it doesn't take me six times to check to make sure the door's locked. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can train in some ways my brain get to three and now it's two and now you know oh, it's still not as too much but uh but it's there two is good two is good yeah two is good right <laughs> uh, and so even through all the, the complexities of our brain uh and the differences of our brain which we recognize uh you know that there is abilities in certain stages right to to create new pathways i say all that to say like in this closure like when you when you talk about the ability of like uh us in an age where we almost short circuit our brains or we uh, we have a very limited view uh, of difference in disability in, in an uplifting way versus kind of a denigrating way. Uh, what are the new like ethical neural pathways you think we should be creating uh, to say like our mind can see something much greater than ability and disability uh, or uh, able to read and dyslexic and what we associate with that and so for you like what, what would be your kind of closing thought if like if we can create in this episode like um what's that one new neural pathway an ethical neural pathway that we can change uh, uh in, in society so i guess what i would suggest to everyone is that we take on the perspective of others in general and in particular so in general that we have a stance just as daniel you're rightly wonderfully expressing how we can change from six times to check the door to two well i suggest that we make an effort to really go after perspective taking um with with as much vigor and rigor across our disciplines and it begins in early childhood. You know, how do we teach our, our children compassion and empathy? We call it the moral laboratory for children. Well, it begins with stories of animals, frog and toad, uh, Matilda, uh, 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 Charlotte's Web. We use stories with, with early childhood, and uh, we and and Steph and a Amber and Madison. We all were talking a little bit in 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 burst about the power of fiction to immerse ourselves in in the thoughts of others. I I use Gish Jen's work. She's a Chinese American novelist. Just wrote a set of short stories. Mr. Nixon goes to China, but she wrote a book called The Resistors and a book called World in Town. How can we get fiction into the lives of, of people to understand that there are such differences in who we are? And as we, as, as we celebrate those differences and understand they're not all easy differences, how do we understand what it feels like to be called dumb and lazy. Well, how how do we teach each 
each classroom? How do we teach our teachers? And so I, I want parent campaigns. I want teacher campaigns. I want what's called pre-service training to understand dyslexia as a way of understanding all kinds of other differences in our children. And I want, if only we could make um, just in general in our work and everybody here is in a, in a somewhat related discipline, how can we make our own disciplines be more open to the perspective taking with other viewpoints. If we are really after understanding others, we will understand dyslexia. We will understand autism. We will understand the, the ups and downs, the dailiness of having these kinds of challenges. And if only Daniel and John and Madison and, and Steph and Amber, if only we could clone you to help in your environment. And that's partly, John, back to you, why I said yes to this. We each have multiple occasions to influence. We may not be influencers. I, you know, that's uh, social media is its own topic that I won't even touch, but we can, we can exert what Tolstoy said when asked, what do we do? He said, we do what's in front of us. And when we have that attitude, Daniel, to do what's in front of us, we don't even know what will be asked, but I, I will use a, an, an untheological term that sounds theological. I think we're sometimes asked to be minute angels, <laughs> you know, giving whatever environment we're in, whatever opportunity we have to underscore what is good, what is just, what is true, and what is beautiful. Professor Wolf, thank you so much for your time. This has been exceptional. I just love how informative this has been, but also how challenging and exciting and, and encouraging that this is, but really seeing that the, the issue is, is with us and our inability to, to uh, accommodate in particular, as you said, that, that, that mortal sin of not knowing how to teach uh, children with dyslexia, how to read, just really uh, appreciate that, that, that challenge. And thank you so much for your time, for your research and for, for being with us today. Wonderful. Well, to all of you, Godspeed. We're all together. We're warriors. <laughs> warriors for humanity. <laughs>